of our former students who are back. We're very glad that you've come to be with us and to worship here today. Our lesson, our second lesson, is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. In chapter 18, verse 9 following, a very beautiful and important part of the discipleship parables that we have been teaching uh, about lately here in this church. We talked a few weeks ago about two brothers who were told by their father to go and work in the vineyard. One of them, with great politeness and much false religious language, said, yes, father, I'll go. But he didn't. And one was rebellious and said, no, I won't go. But then he had second thoughts. And the gospel always appeals to our second thoughts. And he changed his mind and went and did the will of his father. And Jesus pointed out that there's time for us to change our mind and to come back to him. Then we talked about laborers in a vineyard, people standing in a marketplace who had nothing to do. And the master goes at six in the morning and hires many and agrees with them for a silver coin a day. And they go and work in the vineyard. And he comes back at nine in the morning and sees others. And again at noon and again at three in the afternoon. And then finally at five in the afternoon and sends them all into his field. And when the paymaster pays them, they each receive the same silver coin, which is symbolic of redemption. And so some grumble and complain. We've borne the heat of the day. Why did these who have worked only an hour receive as much as we did? And the Lord Jesus, with loving language, says to him, Friend, you agreed with me, did you not, for one shilling a day or one silver coin? And he said, Yes. And he says, It is not wrong for me to do what I want to with what is mine. And Jesus is teaching us by this element of surprise that God is very, very gracious and that he will take even those at the last minute, like the thief on the cross, who will come to him. But he also wants us to know that those who come at the last are apt to miss out on the great blessing of having been with their master all day long and have known the joy and the dignity of labor during that day. And now today we have a parable that is very appropriate for coming to the Holy Supper. Let me read to you these words from chapter 18 of Luke, verse 9. Now he tells us why he is telling the parable. Luke tells us this. And he told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people are, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven and was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful unto me, 
the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. The parable begins with a statement by St. Luke himself. Luke describes the reason why Jesus told the parable. He told it to certain who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who hardened their hearts and despised others. A great old commentator on scripture has written these little lines. Two went to pray, or rather say one went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high, where the other dares not send his eye. One nearer to God's altar trod, the other to the altar's God. Now that expresses it very well. There is a psychological insight here in the person who feels himself righteous, self-righteous. That means autonomous, that he is sufficient on his own. And if you are sufficient on your own, this table is not for you. This is for sinners only. The church is the only organization on the planet Earth where the sole qualification for entry is your unworthiness, where you recognize your need of your sins and your need of the Savior. Last week I saw an ad on television on Channel 12 for the musical uh, on Little Orphan Annie. It's called Annie. And some of you have perhaps seen it. And in that musical, there is a, a famous line in which Daddy Warbucks, who is a billionaire, extremely rich, speaks to Annie. Annie doesn't agree with him and really isn't all this bad, but this is what he says. You know, Annie, on my way up to the top, I clawed and stepped on an awful lot of people. But my philosophy, Annie, is this. that if you don't plan on coming back down, it doesn't hurt much what you do to people on the way up. And the incredible thing was that the audience applauded when these lines were given. This is in keeping with much of an evil philosophy which has pervaded our land on watch out for number one. You're number one. Be number one at all costs. Be selfish. Be self-sufficient. Look out for yourself. Nothing could be further from the truth as far as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned. We know this because those of us who have reckoned that the greatest thing that can happen to any of us is salvation, we sense this when we come close to God. The Pharisees, there were about 7,000 of them in in and around Jerusalem during the time of our Lord's life really began about 150 B.C. They were a group of lay people. They were not priests. They were not ministers. They were lay people. They kept very strictly 
the law, and they did many things that were good. This Pharisee says about himself that he fasted twice in the week. And that itself gets me under conviction. He fasted twice in the week, and not only did he fast, but he gave what he saved from the fast to the poor. What would happen if we who claim to know and love Jesus did that today? He fasted and had such social conscience that he gave what he saved from fasting to the poor. He gave tithes, one-tenth of all that he possessed, even down to the little vegetables and herbs and spices in his garden. And so there were many good things about the Pharisee. And his prayer really begins well. He addresses God, and he says that he is thankful. And it's proper for us. There is one famous old prayer that begins, It is meet, right, and our bounden duty in all things to give thanks unto God. And yesterday, when we had the service here in Gaither Chapel and where this communion table stands, was the precious little body of Aunt Gay Curry. 90 years old, little temple of clay from whom the spirit had fled. The old house that she lived in was to be taken out to Mountain View Cemetery yesterday afternoon. And we thought about her. And all of us got blessed by thinking about the suffering and the hardship through which she passed as a missionary in helping and aiding her husband. And those of us who watched Uncle Ed and Aunt Gay drive down the road in their old car so close together uh, that they looked like two little teenagers. Their love for each other very precious. Sixty-two years together. Why did they go out there to China in 1920? They didn't go out there to make money. I looked through the book yesterday of our missionaries and I was astounded at the incredibly gifted and talented people who could have stayed here and made millions of dollars. But they went out there because they loved Jesus. They wanted to tell other people about the love of Jesus too. They wanted to share what it means to come and to know him as Savior. This is a part of a missionary correspondence letter from a medical missionary, Dr. David, David Stewart, from the University of St. Louis. It sort of sets in perspective for all of us what the true values of life really are. He and his wife in the summer of 1978 took a trip around the world. They had gone as medical missionaries to Africa some years before, but had been forced to return because of their health, and now they had gone back out again to give aid uh, in a short-term way, visiting the various mission stations and helping the missionaries from a psychiatric and medical standpoint. On their way back, they came through Tehran. This was in 1978, and they went to visit the treasury of the late Shah of Iran. Now listen to this missionary's description. There is something very human in the desire to possess an object rare and beautiful. The gem will do, a pearl or a diamond, perhaps an emerald. If we worked for it, if it helped to recall a transcendent moment, we could treasure it. 
we could glory in its reflections, refractions, its uniqueness. We've been to see the Shaw's jewels, or some of them. For a dollar and a half, you may go to the basement of his bank, and there you enter a vault the size of a tennis court, lined and littered by showcases, crowns and gowns, thrones and stones. A diamond as big as a paperweight, dozens more the size of pecans, hundreds like cherries, thousands like corn, row upon row, too many to say. The crowns are gaudy and tasteless, heavy and dusty. The great gold globe studded with diamonds as big as a beach ball. Emeralds from the sea, rubies from the land, 18,000 carats. Still there were quarts of gems that were unset, plus 66 tassels of 3,000 pearls each, and cases of watches and boxes and baubles each beyond price. In a human sense, they had become meaningless, just pretty and pebbles. Priceless, but still pebbles. Treasure, but not treasured. Lovely, but not loved. A sight to see, but we left without regret or envy after 20 minutes. And then we traveled on to India. Now listen to what he says about what happened to him in Calcutta. It was just another corner of a street in Calcutta, narrow, a din of voices, a jam of people, rickshaws and carts, and even stagecoaches drawn by tiny horses. A cow stood in their midst, beggars tugged at their arms and chanted their miseries. Only the air, steamy, hot, and rank moved, not at all. The building we'd sought was crowded, right up to the sidewalk, a single floor, an open door, and inside a sign that said, Silence my soul, and a door. We had come to Mother Teresa's house for the dying. It was a tableau from another century, like one of those old woodcuts of a plague house from the dark ages, except for the electric ceiling fan that it made a merciful whirring. No more than a large room with dividers, it was crowded with hundreds of stretchers. On each rubber mat, there was someone ready to die. All were emaciated. Some were swelling. Some could sit, but eyes were sunken and vacant. Others appeared unconscious, tuberculosis, malignancy, malnutrition. It would be hard to imagine those better qualified for Jesus' words, the least of these. There's a special concern of a Catholic order that does nothing else. Two dozen young Indian men and women, novices in the order, moved among the patients directed by Indian nuns. Food was cooking in a big pot. The new arrival had been hosed down, was getting a haircut, the matted, tangled mass of hair coming away from his scalp, all in one piece. One diminutive nun spoke in English. Yes, they did take absolutely anyone. No, not all died. Yes, some did revive by food alone. Yes, they gave some simple treatment. Yes, there had been a doctor, but that was three months ago. Yes, they did hope for another. Most of the nuns were not nurses. The one working there was French. The founder, Mother Teresa, is from Yugoslavia. This was the first such home that had been established. Now there are others in India, all supported by donations. Yes, they would be pleased to accept a donation from us and money, even just now. She went back to her work, scarcely breaking step, and paused to read 
And we pause to read a direct and simple prayer on the wall, a prayer she must need to read often. And so we left, thoughtful, fortunate, and humble. And later in that letter, we attempted to remark on the Shaw's vault of riches and Mother Teresa's house of dying. The rooms were about the same size. Both were filled with people who moved slowly and spoke softly. Each place had a sign on the wall. The jewels at the Shaw's were attended by muscular young men who scowled at us and made sure that the signs forbidding us even to touch a showcase were observed. The dying were worthless in every sense but one. Now this is the point. The tiny flicker of life, pointless now, but still somehow sublime. We vote with people instead of jewels. People dirty, fragile, sinful, selfish, dangerous, corrupt, but redeemable. Just in case you'd like to read it. The sign on the wall of the house reads, quote, Dear Lord, the great healer, I kneel before you. Since every good and perfect gift must come from you, I pray give skill to my hands, clear vision to my mind, kindness and sympathy to my heart. Give me a singleness of purpose and strength to lift at least a part of the burden of my suffering fellow man and a true realization of the privilege that's mine. Take from my heart all guile and worldliness that with the simple faith of a child I may rely upon you. You see, the Pharisee is autonomous in himself. The contrast with the one who comes up there, a sinner, is saying, God, be merciful to me, not a sinner, but the sinner. Last night when I read the parable, I thought about these missionaries like Aunt Gay, and I thought about missionaries like this man, and I thought about the varying lifestyles of Christians and some empty-headed, frizzly-haired woman on television on the Christian network showing her jewels. I don't understand. Uh, we all uh, need to be more careful. Here the Lord is pointing out to us that it's the person who recognizes his need who's going to see the true value. The Pharisee didn't have any need, he thought, and he despised other people. He trusted in himself, and he went away. He went away having missed the blessing. And the one who cast himself on the mercy of God, that one found the blessing of God in Christ. And those who have found that blessing become like that missionary, and like that missionary we buried yesterday, to see that what really counts in life is the worth of a human soul, and to bring them into a knowledge of the Savior, and to show them the Savior's love, not the silly baubles and frills that come and go with life, all of this will pass away very quickly. When I thought of the inspiration of her faith yesterday, 
I couldn't help but think of what Martin Luther had said, that you cannot get to heaven on someone else's believing. You cannot believe for someone else any more than you can die for someone else. We have to be believing like she. Believing in what Christ could do here. And what did he do? When she went through trouble. When a terrible thing happened. The taxes verbal description because it was so wretched and painful. And her precious little boy was taken from her. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Uncle Jack Vinson wrote these words, and I want to read you just a paragraph that the people liked yesterday. He went over that morning, the morning the terrible tragedy had taken place. Our hearts are still stunned and numb. So quickly did it happen, so swiftly did his little spirit return unto the God who gave it. It seems as though he were only running on swift, eager, impetuous, hasty feet at the Savior's call and springing into his waiting arms. There was just the same loving, unafraid confidence and trust with which he always ran to meet his father or climbed up into his mother's lap. One minute, the sturdy, strong little body bubbling over with earthly energy and health and strength, and the next, the delicate soul clothed in immortality with Christ's own dear arms about him. And then follows the description of his death which was so painful that it would have driven many a woman stark raving mad. He went over to Uncle Gay's house immediately when he heard about the accident, and he writes these words. As you know, Aunt Gay's body is small and delicately made, but there resides in, in it a courage that is invincible, a faith and a love and a trust wonderful and amazing to us who know and love her. I knew when I looked into her face this morning that she wasn't thinking of the tragedy which had come into her home and life. She was thinking it is well with the lad. She knows that little Johnny is safe forever in Jesus' keeping. Gay is the one the rest of us always go to when our own hearts are in distress. The light of faith glows so brightly in her soul that she sees clearly when it seems dark night to the rest of us. I went over there this morning thinking to comfort her, but I came away feeling that Gay had already been with Jesus and that I had been given the vision of a beautiful soul, tranquil, shining through her eyes. I'm trying to talk about pride and humility about those who sense their sin and the need of the Savior and those who go and do the Savior's bidding and true values in life. The missionary sees the value of a soul for whom Christ died. Not all of us are called to go, but we can all work and pray. And all of us can seek to live closer to Jesus so that we are careful to show forth his love. The Pharisee went wrong because he trusted in himself. And the publican went right because he cast himself 
on the mercy of God. Last night I took out my old book beside the Bonnie Briar Bush by Ian McLaren. And in it there's the story of William McClure, a medical doctor who served for 40 years the people in this highland village in Scotland. And when William McClure was dying, his best friend, whose name was Drumshee, came to his bedside. And there by the bedside table was a lamp and his mother's Bible. And he told Drumshee that he didn't have long. And he said, would you read something to me from my mother's Bible? And Drumshee opened it to the scripture we read yesterday for Aunt Gay. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And old Dr. McClure said, stop. He said that would do for your mother, for she was a saint. But it's not for the likes of me. He said, hold the Bible out and let it fall open to the place I've been reading every night. And it fell open to the place that he had been reading, marked and stained with his teardrops. And do you know what it said? God be merciful to me, a sinner. If we recognize our need of him, we can come to his table. If we're like the Pharisee, we're autonomous and self-sufficient and we shouldn't touch it. But if we are like that publican and know our need of him, then we can take it. Francis Schaeffer once said on a television program when he had one minute to describe what a Christian was. He looked at the sweeping second hand and he said a Christian is one who bows twice, once to show that he is not autonomous, and the second bow to thank God that he has redeemed him through Christ. And just that quickly, you can give your heart to Christ and take him this day too. And now let us receive the benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be all glory, honor, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore.